Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. All right. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Randy, how's it going? Hey, Jake, I'm doing great. I'm uh, really excited because you're in Seattle today, so that means that we get to go jam. So that fires me up beyond belief. Uh, me too. It's so great. We spend so much time together on Skype, but now we get to spend time together in person. It's just, I love it. I I'm so happy. Yeah, me too. Uh, I, I like virtual Jake, but I love real Jake. Yeah, we can do more than just talk. We can <laughs> Yes. We can so, play with the Frisbee. Yes, yeah, so we get to play, which is what a great uh, segue into today's episode. We're going to continue our conversation with the man, the myth, the legend, Stork, uh, Dan Roddick. And uh, he's going to kind of dive into the whole idea of Frisbee and the essence of play, and especially regarding longevity. So enjoy. Frisbee has this, this longevity piece connected to it and talking about how, of course, it gets your body out there moving around and activity is good. But it was the essence of play that was really the driving force in that. And, and I'd said something like, if it's going to become work, then you're not going to do it. But if you're going to play, you're going to want to do it all the time. And the, and the other thing is that there's so many things that I don't want to pull this into the muck, but there's so many things we have wrong in modern life. And one of them is 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 what passes for, well, I, I guess it's physical fitness training. I mean, the gym, the no pain, no gain extension of the rest of your day is to go in there and find a way to make that regimented and painful uh, and drudgery. It, it, to my mind, it completely misses the point of recreation recreation is to is to leave those leave those constraints behind i always felt that tom baudet now uh uh yuna baudet really had tapped into a lot of those things super early i mean when i came out to the west coast i mean i knew i knew next to nothing really i mean one of my first playing experiences was was with spider wills on the on the beach in laguna i'll get back to to tom and so he and I jammed in Laguna Beach. And I was this super straight Boy Scout type from the East Coast. And we played and our games were an interesting fit together. And he incidentally was doing flat-handed lifts and then having them catch the wind and turn and catching them. I wasn't doing anything like that. On the other hand, amazingly, he was astounded by my behind-the-head catch, if you can, if you can believe that. I mean, he's going, wow, what's it's like a behind the back catch, except it's over your shoulder. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so we finish, he's done and he's all sweaty. So he just drops his swimsuit right there. And I'm, I'm going, whoa, okay. I mean, yeah, right. We don't have little light little cabanas or something where we change, you know, and yeah. Oh man, no, no dude, you know, say, oh, okay, um, that, that's fine. You know, I'm, I'm with it, no problem. Next, he's explaining to me that one of his first jobs was he was lab assistant for Timothy Leary. Okay. And I'm going, okay. I heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. I said it was, Tim was great. You know, I, I mean, I always kind of stayed late and, you know, I'll close up Tim. No worries. Have a good evening. 
And so that was a big revelation. And his working life was shooting, um, I guess it was Bruce Brown, uh, Endless Summer. I think that was his first film. So Spider was one of his main filmers. And I said, well, how much work to get out of it? Oh, you know, a couple weeks a year. I said, wow. Okay, a couple weeks. Then what do you do the rest of the time? Whatever I want. I said, wow. Okay, that's interesting. said, yeah, everybody's got it backwards. They work 50 weeks in the hopes that they'll have fun for two. I work my ass off for two weeks, and then and I've got the 50 to to make sure I have fun. That was very uh, mind-expanding. Anyway, back to uh, to Baudet of just saying, hey, we don't want our games to be so constraining. I mean, every time I would come up with some, you know, I missed your codification, <clears throat> I'd have some, some rule or restriction or whatever, and uh, Baudet would always be, Let's allow people to be themselves. You know, they want to they want to open themselves. They don't want to restrict themselves. You never really liked golf because I don't want people to have to be careful. They're careful in the rest of their lives. I want them to come out and be carefree. Have them be carefree. I don't want them there. God, am I going to be close enough to make my putt? I mean, we get plenty of that in the boardroom. We want to be free out here. And so uh, I really think that we have a tremendous contribution to give to society now to try to reacquaint people with play. And especially when we know that the world is primarily doing this. And this is, this is a curse that if we don't deal with it, I mean, it is so dramatically changed what it means to be a person there's never been such a tight connection between technology and people as this. For those who are listening and can't see, oh, Stork oh, is looking sorry. at his cell phone. The yes. last time we were that tight with technology was the man at that time uh, in the West who woke up and said, where's my six gun? You know, where if you didn't have your six gun strapped to your leg, you weren't, you weren't ready to go. I mean, you weren't a full person unless you had your gun. And now... Tell somebody that you're gonna you're gonna keep their phone for a day. I mean, they got the nervous twitch. It's, when we were kids, we were fighting with our parents about how long we could stay out to play before dinner. That's not the fight now. That is not the fight. The fight is how long can I be on my device? We're gonna pay our dues on that. We are we are on in so many ways. I mean, so I think we've got a challenge ahead of us, and we've and we've got wonderful solutions for so many problems that society has. I mean, football, the concussive issues in football. I mean, it's on the ropes. It is, it is on the ropes. I mean, who's sending their kid to midget football now? Right. And that's the, and that's the feeder. I mean, ultimate, ultimate has an unbelievable opportunity to uh, step in there and provide people with a more, sustaining healthful growth producing activity i mean i i love football football was my life and dad was a coach and i grew up just completely uh completely engrossed with it but i'm sure there were people who thought the gladiator battles were really cool too it's just i just don't see how we can continue to have games that destroy people i mean bob costas said it a few weeks ago he says this unfortunately is a game that ruins people's brains and it it can't be continued unless unless we want to continue roman circus so our games are poised 
to help people. Yeah. What was the question? question? (laughs) I don't remember, but I do think that's interesting. The whole Tombow day, you know, structure, no structure. I don't come to play Frisbee to get a structure, but we still struggle with that sense of, you know, because of competition. Competition is we're trying to put structure around this play. And we certainly notice it in freestyle today. And I'm sure when freestyle competitions first started, you've got the, hey, I just want to go with the flow camp. And you've got the other, I want to put structure and and routines together. And uh, it's interesting that there's that little uh, microcosm within that whole freedom of Frisbee. Well, that's been... Uh... <laughs> I'm sure you've had that discussion with uh, with other participants, and and it's it's a a really naughty issue, and it's <laughs> it, it's been interesting to me to now as more of an observer to see the uh, the kinds of of gatherings that uh, that are that are popular in freestyle, and my sense is that more and more people have been uh, interested in gathering to play in more of a festival format than necessarily to compete. Not that the competitions don't remain interesting and important, they do. But it, but it, it feels to me, as I see the schedule evolve and I follow Facebook and see things that people report on, it seems to me that a, there's a lot of juice in getting together to play uh, in a in a format that is not necessarily uh, competitive. I'm also interested to to see like let's take let's take the competitive focus of early 80s versus today when there were a good many uh, dedicated team pairings. this was this was even a little bit before, Coloradicals, but but right on the edge of Coloradicals. So so where you were looking at uh, the teams that we had in like WFC eighty two three something like that, where they were tremendously prepared. You know they had put huge amount of work uh, into their routines and were intensely focused on that competition. There weren't that many competitions, and so. It was even more intensely focused on that. And when I think back to, and I don't know if this will ring a bell with you or not, but do you remember Pick Your Poison? Does that ring yes. a bell? Oh, yeah. We've yeah, talked yeah. about it before on the podcast. Okay. Wow. I mean, the the level of of focus and intensity that those teams had and how well they knew each other and how their games matched up and the maybe we only ever ran it one time i mean it was at la mirada and i seem to remember there were like maybe 20 teams lined lined up and then they they kept kind of jumping around as they as they voted and the and the market determined what the pools were going to be i i can't imagine that people could be more intensely interested in the competition than they were then I understand that probably, I mean, certainly the level of play is higher now, but I have to suspect that the amount of time and effort that people put into their play, it can't compare with what people were doing then. I I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, 
but I, I think there was more of a focus on the competition then than there is now. Is that off base? It's a good question. I think I think you're right in one respect, and that is people like to get together more for the fun of it than they used to. Like people share share moves, they get together for events that are not even competition events. And many, many of the events run the competition as fast as they can, get it done so that everyone can just jam for the rest of the time. <laughs> like that's how jammers runs. And there's other events where they've come up with judging systems that are really just about you jam together and at the end of the day you go vote on who you had the most fun with. And, and that's really the whole competition. Uh, and there's an, uh, an event, uh, it's called Summit to Sea, I believe, in Italy, where a bunch of people get together and they jam up in the mountains and they hike down to the ocean and jam there the next day. It's like, there's so many things that are not competition-based. But the people who practice, the people put in some serious time. So I think from that perspective, people are still very serious about being the best possible freestyler that they could be. And I mean, I wasn't there in the 80s, but I know some of the intensity for some of the players now, like James Wiseman or like the the players in Karlsruhe that practice so many hours. Uh, those guys are very serious about it, about being really good. So Maybe I'm thinking more in terms of the preparation of a team than of an individual. Because, yeah, I mean, obviously, obviously the individuals have made huge leaps in terms of their individual quality play. It, and maybe it's that people didn't, didn't change their partners as much then. Maybe maybe that's it. I, I don't know. I mean, it was the same with DDC. That also was kind of the golden age of DDC in that there were there were teams that you knew that stayed together for a long time. And now it seems, you know, every every tournament there they're different combinations and and so by definition, they're they're probably relatively less prepared for high level DDC because they're happy to play with other people. It's interesting to play with other people. And so instead of just resolutely preparing with their one partner, they, they mix and match. So as I say, that's uh, my, my main observation was that people seem to really like these uh, opportunities to simply go play. I mean, almost by mathematical definition, only, only a few people are going to come out of a competition as, as completely satisfied. Whereas when you have one that's that's less formalized, uh, everybody can come out having one. Yeah, definitely. The intensity back in the 80s was way more than it is now. It doesn't mean that people now don't put in the effort to try to do routines. I think there was just much more focus. Um, I don't know if it's the competition was what was driving it. Or we've also found a lot of people were really trying to make a living at being a freestyler, being a frisbee player, and people aren't, that isn't the focus nowadays. Um, a lot of folks were saying, well, hey, if you didn't win, you didn't get the shows. And so there was that added effort or the added zing for the intensity to, I'm going to beat you. And why maybe pick the pick your poison had so much more uh, energy around because I know if I get put in this pool that's got four hard teams instead of three hard teams, I need every advantage I can get. And I was so much younger than a lot of the other folks. I was, you know, I was like 16 and they were 19 and 20. That's a big gap in age. But it was not a, a it wasn't the jamly that it is now. People were still really supportive, veiled support, but it was just really intense. But I, I don't know, maybe people were trying to make a living at it more in those early days. And that was why the intensity was there. So we've talked to a lot of folks who have mentioned Jersey Jam and Octad as being these real moments, these aha 
wow, this is really going somewhere. And we've heard it from the Velasquez brothers, and we've heard it from Joey and and so on. All of them mentioned that you were there with uh, Irv Kalb. So what was that experience like, that Jersey Jam, and where had freestyle gotten to for you at this point and your relationship with Irv Kalb? Wow, the Octad, uh, well, a, a little a little underpinning on Octad. I came into this situation to, I wish I had the little snippet, it wasn't a snippet, I probably talked for 15 minutes, but... Um, they they were nice enough to induct me into the uh, the New Jersey Disc Golf Hall of Fame uh, half a year ago or something, and I was talking to them about the um, the synchronicity that brought me to New Jersey, and that was that uh, I was getting out of uh, school in uh, Pennsylvania, and I was I wanted to go to grad school for sociology, and the the two places that were a fit with the program I wanted and were within the range that we could pull our house trailer were Penn State and Rutgers. We kind of worried over this decision for quite a while. And uh, Dad said, you know, a lot of these are imponderables and things happen as they should. And you've, you've done the balance sheet and, and everything is pretty equal here. And he handed me a 1921, the year he was born, uh, silver dollar, and he said, flip it. Uh, heads was Rutgers and tails was Penn State, and I flipped it, and it was heads. And I said to those people, uh, so, folks, <laughs> let's just say our lives would be a lot different if that had been tails, because we pulled the trailer, <clears throat> pulled into Tina's Motel and Trailer Court, saw Jimmy Scala, you know, eventually hooked up with Irv, the community there uh, ran to Gary Subert, Flash, Eberly came, got that wonderful Jersey community going, found the opportunity to do Octad. All those things fell into place because it was just the right crucible at the right time. And I guess I was the right guy to be a catalyst in that. What year did you flip that coin? Uh, that would have been uh, 1970 going on to 71. And by 70, early 73, we had gotten the trailer. Uh, one little sidebar, when we set up the bank account, we go into the bank and, and they say, oh, well, on your checks, you'll probably want, you know, your address because people like that, you know, just so they know you're stable and everything. And oh, uh, what, what, what's your address? And I said, well, it'd be Tina's Tina's motel and trailer court site 11. And she said, you know, and sometimes just the phone number is fine. You know, I mean, (laughs) it can be fine, too. So anyway, um, I, I came there with a lot of background from track and field because dad was not only a football coach uh, at at Shippensburg, but also the track and field coach. And so. I spent a lot of my time up there taping ankles, uh, helping out, uh, did some pretty poor high school track and field of my own, but it was my mentality. So when I, when I came to Rutgers and, and Gary and I got to talking about, well, let's have a big event because we're simultaneously uh, beginning to put out uh, Flying Disc World magazine. And uh, at this point, um, 
Well, Flying Disc World, by that time, I had moved from the trailer court into the Rutgers Mental Health Center. Now, let me clarify this. This was not under court order, okay? <laughs> it was a job opportunity, okay? I want that to be clear. It was a job opportunity. We were we were living. You wouldn't have wanted to give that address to the bank person either, probably. Not probably, no. <laughs> Room four in the transitional unit uh, of the Rutgers Mental Health Center. Yes. Space uh, 11 to room four. Nice. <laughs> so anyway, we definitely were starting flying this uh, world magazine when we were there, because I remember that somehow I managed to fill the, the key to the, uh, the duplicating room. And that was the whole key to the, to the business model was that we could get in there and mimeograph, I, I don't know if most of your listeners will even know what that is, but but you you mimeographed these these copies and somehow they weren't keeping track of things well enough to know that we had printed our copies at night. So that was the key to the publishing of uh, Flying Disc World magazine. And speaking of that, I hate to keep sidebarring you, but when I started up Flying Disc uh, World magazine, I was in um, periodic uh, communication with Ed Hedrick through through that time period. And so when I was talking with Ed about this, Ed was still uh, in his position at, at WAMO, and this was kind of about the time of Octet. Octet was just starting up at that point. So so WAMO, their their best disc at the point at that point would have been like the super pro and they were feeling the heat because in 74 i had won the car in rochester with the cpi and the cpi was uh, if you're if you're not familiar with it imagine a a beefed up pro model with no ridges this was of real concern to whammo and ed because of course they'd been pitching the ridges for years as a flight enhancer the fact of the matter is that 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 you heard when you threw them, that was the speed being scrubbed off, you know. And so it turned out that the ridges were mostly shelf appeal and a marketing advantage, but these slipperier, smoother discs were better performers. And thus, the reason why uh, after the, the victory of the CPI up in Rochester, then Ed shows up with the Octad Super Pro, which was we're going to remove most of the ridges, not enough to get outside the patent, but enough that this critical edge that has this turbulence, it's going to be smoothed out. So the Octad Super Pro came from that. So anyway, I was obviously communicating with Ed during that time, and I said, we're starting up uh, Flying Disc World magazine. And he said, why? Why that? You know, I mean, we got IFA News and, you know, why Flying This World Magazine? I said, well, you know, I mean, I think we want something for, you know, who knows what the sport and the industry is going to be like. And, you know, we're going to do an event here. And um said, well, they've, they've got IFT, you know. I mean, they've got guts up there, IFT. I said, yeah, I know. I, I was up there. It's really great. But we're going to we're gonna do something a little different here. And he said, well, what did you say you're going to call it? I said, Fly, Flying Flying Discworld magazine. He said, well, that that sounds weird. 
I mean, that's that sounds like it's for like chiro chiropractic people who have pilots' licenses or something. I mean, flying. I don't get it. Flying disc. I. I mean, why don't you use frisbee? I said, well, because there's these other discs, and we need some other kind of word that that you know takes all of them in, you know. And the frisbee brand disc is, you know, obviously the most popular and probably best and biggest seller, and you know all of those. But then there there could possibly, I don't know, be others, and we'll need some word flying disc. And said, well, I don't know, I don't I don't particularly like it. So. But it was interesting that, you know, then that, as they began to realize their trademark challenges, that, of course, became the generic that, that they really had to use. So as Frisbee brand flying discs, you, you, need, you need something that follows like hula hoop spinning toy. You know, you need, you need something that's your, that's your generic. So they really need it. It ended up being a good thing for them because as the market developed, they, they needed to have something that consumer, your responsibility when you have a powerful trademark is to refresh the consumer's understanding that there are a multiplicity of choices. That is, there are many flying discs and our Frisbee disc is, is one of the best, so you should consider it. So if when you, you had that, you had that initial conversation with Ed Hedrick, trademark was not even really what you guys were discussing it was just the sound of the name. Right. This, this, the wow. sound of the name. And he, it, it wasn't, I mean, Wemo over those years had, you know, kind of varied, varied mentality about the trademark and, and early in the going, uh, you know, you'd see some early IFA stuff that says, Hey, there's other people out there, uh, you know, who using things that, that aren't the original Frisbee. Remember, this is the international Frisbee association. But there really wasn't a consistent focus and understanding on how to use the term correctly. I mean, there was a huge campaign even after I came to Whammo that was uh, Frisbee. You just can't do it alone. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's don't want that. That's not that's not good. I mean, it's it's an adjective for us for a spinning toy. You know, I mean, it's not it's not an activity. You don't go Frisbee. You don't go Frisbee. You don't want, you don't want that. So. The, the whole idea, even though it ended up that Flying Disc World magazine was a great thing for the, the trademark, the Frisbee trademark, because it established that there was a generic. Uh, it was one of the interesting things when I was working for Mattel, just to go 30 more years ahead. When I was there, the, the, like the, the three products that we brought in from, from Whammo were Frisbee, well, four, Frisbee, Hacky Sack, Hula Hoop, and uh, Maury uh, Boogie Board. And the interesting thing was when I was talking to their, their sales force, every one of those were, were category definers. That is, nobody knew anything about flying discs until they saw the Frisbee. Nobody knew anything about foot bags until they saw the hacky sack. Nobody knew anything about spinning hoops till they saw the hula hoop. Nobody knew anything about body boards till they saw the Maury, the Boogie Board. And whereas Barbie, everybody knew what a doll was when they saw Barbie. They weren't tempted to call every miniature <laughs> plaything that looked like a little girl. Oh, that must be a Barbie. They knew it was a doll and this was a Barbie doll. So those were unbelievably powerful products that were all category definers. With that comes a lot of challenge. You know, and so when when Ed first saw this magazine name, you know, he, he thought of it as a, 
a bad thing, but it turned out uh, definitely that it was a good thing for the trademark because uh, it clarified the the category. Wow, what a fascinating discussion about the, the history of the term Frisbee and flying disc. Uh, I was surprised, actually, that in the beginning, they were a little bit against the term flying disc because uh, it seems so natural that it would be a separator for flying disc versus Frisbee so you can keep your trademark. But huh. Yeah, and I think what's fascinating is that there was no idea of there being any contention regarding trademark. It was just sort of this organic thing that was happening then all of a sudden you know things changed as the marketplace started taking hold and it was like whoa wait a second there's trademark issues here so that was uh, interesting to hear the birth of that conversation and we still use the term frisbee today almost interchangeably with flying disc freestyle mm -hmm. frisbee well anyhow let's uh, wrap up this show so we just want to say a special thank you to everyone out there who's been supporting us and uh, really appreciate your support so thanks a lot Yes, and on that note, Jake, I will talk to you next time. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us or for more info, check us out at frisbeeguru.com.